welcome your host for this episode, Adina Laver, founder of Courage to be Curious and formerly Divorce Essentials. Excited to have you on with a topic that we've never covered before because it really would not have been applicable even in Pennsylvania where we're located, but until just recently, as well as in many other states. So we have a really special call today um, as a topic today for our monthly support call on understanding same-sex divorce. So we're excited to be here and we have a wonderful guest with us. Our guest is Rebecca Levin, and she is with a law firm, Jerner & Palmer, located in Pennsylvania, though she just introduced herself that she practices both in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Since this topic is so highly relevant, we're going to talk about, use Pennsylvania as a, as a general context, but a lot of the legal issues that we're going to raise, a lot of the familial issues, um, social and interpersonal relations that, relation, uh, issues that we're going to discuss are going to cut across state lines and state boundaries and be relevant to people from all over the country. So um, we're very excited to have Rebecca on. She is a founding member of the LGBT Family Law Institute, an annual conference that allows LGBT family law practitioners to discuss cutting-edge legal strategies for representing members of the LGBT community. She also serves on the, served on the board of the National LGBT Bar Association from 2006 to 2010, chairing the organization's policy committee, and she continues to serve on the LGBT Bar Association's policy committee. Prior to joining Jerner and Palmer, Rebecca worked as an associate as an associate at Lions and Associates from 2008 to 2009, and she served as law clerk to Honorable Thomas H. Dilt, former presiding judge of the family part in the Superior Court of Somerset County, New Jersey. She has served as a law clerk for numerous LGBT rights organizations, including the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, Equality Advocates Pennsylvania, and the American Civil Liberties Union, LGBT Rights Project. Rebecca was a Dean's Fellow at American University, Washington College of Law for Professor, for professor Nancy Polakoff. As a fellow, Ms. Levin, Rebecca, our guest, performed research for Professors Polakoff's book, Beyond Straight and Gay Marriage, Valuing All Families Under the Law, which examines the value or lack thereof of limiting family recognition to families based on marriage. So Rebecca's background, I mean, Rebecca, I'm it's amazing to have you here because you've really been immersing yourself in supporting and representing and understanding marriage and how that affects the LGBT community for a very long time, much way before we were now even in the position to have the conversation we're having today. So I want to welcome you, give you a minute to say hello to people and just say how grateful we are to have you here. Oh, well, thank you, and it's really exciting to be here. And you know, you're right, I mean, we've been dealing with these issues of marriage inequality for so long that's so great to be in a position where we now have marriage equality um, and also equality in divorce, which is actually where all the rights and benefits that are, or many of the rights and benefits that are associated with marriage really come into play. Um, usually, you know, when things are fine, there isn't a problem. But um, when people need the assistance of the courts, you know, before they didn't have it and now we do, and so it's really an exciting time to be practicing in this area of the law. 
And, you know, I, I really appreciate what you just said there. And also for our callers, want to introduce the fact that, you know, while the title of this is Understanding Same-Sex Divorce, it's there's a lot that you and I are going to talk about that really relates to the choices that people have about whether or not they get married and how they get married, which actually might be on a lot of people's mind right now, given that the opportunities to do that are at, greater than they were before. And, um, and what implications those choices can have down the road in a variety of ways. So, you know, while our topic says understanding same-sex divorce, and in essence, we're also looking at the whole marriage side and what kinds of choices people might make for what reason and then what implications they could have down the road and, you know, as I said, in any number of ways. So um, I think this is going to be a great conversation. So one of the places I wanted to start off with um, you and I didn't even talk about this. I'm just throwing it at you because I'm doing all sorts of crazy things here today. But how did you get you know, started in this field? What makes this relevant for you? On a, on a personal level, you know, I've always been interested. Well, well not only am I a member you know, of the LGBT, but um, on a personal level, you know, it, was, it seemed that this is really you know, a civil rights movement that we are just seeing, you know, come to fruition today that if you remember back to 2003 there was a supreme court decision um lawrence that basically decriminalized um you know same sex sex um so if you just think back you know 12 years ago people were still you know laws were on the books that people could be sent to jail and arrested for having consensual relationships and so it's just incredible, you know, to see where we come. And I you know, have always been interested in advocating for different communities. And so certainly I made my rounds at the different, you know, LGBT organizations that Adina mentioned. But really where this affects people is in their personal relationships and the families that they have and the children that they create with their partners. And when I saw, you know, how unjust the law was, and in some places, still continues to be, it was really an area that I wanted to devote my attention to. Right. And, you know, I'll just share, too, my personal passion in having this call. And, you know, I really said I want to have this call um, in this topic is, you know, I was married. I was in a traditional marriage for a number of years until I came out later in life after being married in a traditional marriage for 16 years. And then suddenly before the laws changed in Pennsylvania, I found myself in a situation of, oh, now <laughs> legally, like I'm in a totally other place now that if I wanted, you know, to be with my partner, that it suddenly my my entire legal status changed by making a personal change and having gone from one situation where, you know, a lot of things didn't even really cross my mind and now everything was up in the air and, you know, in terms of how would people be protected and what would it mean and in terms of very various kinds of estate planning things, it was it was a very big transition to make that shift in my personal life. So I'm really, you know, very passionate about covering the topic and having you on. So tell us a little bit, Rebecca, you know, as an overview, how does same-sex divorce tra- differ from a traditional divorce, you know, of a man and a woman who would be getting married and then getting a divorce? What makes this area so different? What is really different at this point is um, how new the law is in you know, Pennsylvania in particular to be inclusive of um, the same-sex divorce and how that affected people's decisions previously 
when divorce, uh, where marriage and divorce was not an option. So certainly the process of getting a divorce is the same. You know, you file a complaint, you know, court dates are scheduled, the same paperwork is considered, you know, the same statutes apply. Um, but what really is different is one thing that's very important when um, a divorce is being looked at by the court and decisions are being made about issues such as um, spousal support, alimony, and equitable distribution is the length of the marriage. And so, you know, if you're going to get alimony for a certain term of years, one of the factors is how long were you married? Um, same thing for equitable distribution. What's called the coverture period is the date of the marriage to the date of separation and assets that were accumulated during that time are subject to equitable distribution. And so for a same-sex couple where they didn't have the option to marry in any state until 2004 and in Pennsylvania until 2014, you might be looking at individuals who have a 20-year relationship and a one-year marriage and certainly looking at the statutes, you know, how they would typically treat a one-year marriage is not the same for, um, you know, may not lead to an equitable result for a same-sex couple. And so certainly there are cases where we need to make, you know, equitable arguments to say the law didn't provide for this previously. They didn't, you know, this couple didn't have the opportunity to enter into a marriage. And so looking at this, you know, one-year marriage when it's a 20-year relationship is, is not fair. And so certainly there are going to be unique issues that come up in that regard. Yeah, there are definitely going to be a lot of issues. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, when you say things like make the case, you know, in a traditional marriage, man and woman, there's a marriage certificate, there's a date of the marriage beginning, and even couples who live together for a period of time, you know, the date, the marriage officially started here, you know. So what are the cases that are, or what are different ways to make the cases? And what are the courts doing with the fact that, you know, they don't really know what to do? Um, well, one one thing that's interesting and it will only work in some situations is Pennsylvania is a state where we had common law marriage up until 2005, and so there are very specific requirements that you need to meet, such as you know stating your intentions that it was to be a married couple. Um, so there certainly, although it hasn't been made yet, there could be some factual patterns. For example, where someone you know there was you know a ceremony white dresses, you know, uh, you know, minister of sorts, you know, where there might be a compelling case for a common law marriage, um, you know, how that interplays with the, you know, law as it previously was saying that these people couldn't be married, you know, we have yet to see. So that's um, one option. But it is, you know, this is very, very new. And so far we don't have, you know, cases have not made their way through the court yet, letting us know how judges are going to handle these issues. And so it's really an area where there is not a lot of, you know, there's no case law to rely on about how the individual judges are going to make decisions. And I think that there's actually going to be a lot of discretion um, with the judiciary. And there might be varying, you know, results from, you know, state to state and county to county based on, you know, how open the courts are to some of these equitable arguments. 
So let me kind of back up the, the train here a little bit and say, you know, and start back at the point of marriage. Now that same-sex marriage is actually allowable in Pennsylvania, what are some of the reasons, you know, whether it's tax reasons, whether it's, um, you know, parental right reasons, whether, you know, you've talked about alimony and equitable distribution, what are some of the reasons that people will be, con- you know, want to think about if they're on the getting married side because of what it might mean later or even a couple that's been together for a long time, why might they choose to get married or not get married at this point in terms of what can happen, you know, if there is a dissolution in the relationship somewhere so what should people be thinking about? Right. Well, you know, and I think it's, that's an interesting question because I think when, you know, a lot of times when opposite sex couples marry, you know, they're not necessarily thinking about, you know, how is this going to financially protect me? You know, a lot, you know, many, you know, people oftentimes, you know, they marry because you know, they've been in a relationship and now the next step is that they're going to marry. And so it's really good that, you know, we're, we can educate ourselves about what it is that marriage means for anyone because certainly it, you know, it provides protection usually for the lower income spouse, you know, who you really don't know, you know, there might, that might be one person today, things might be different down the road. And so it provides you know, protection of, you know, knowing that there's going to be, if something were to happen, a certain level of support. So once, you know, deciding to have children and stay home with those children, certainly it provides protection should ha- something happen to the relationship. Same things with assets. If assets that are accumulated during a marriage, it doesn't matter how they're titled. Those assets are subject to equitable distribution. Um, yes, there are tax benefits, um, but also there can be tax penalties. It's, you know, really, you know, if it's going to be a financial decision whether or not to marry, you know, if people are interested in how it's going to affect their personal taxes, they should um, speak to an accountant because for some people, you know, it lowers their tax burden. For others, it may increase it. Certainly, um, being married does avoid the inheritance tax. Um, which is, you know, one reason that maybe a couple has been together for a long time may decide to marry because um, married couples don't pay inheritance tax on assets that are transferred to their spouse, whereas a couple who was not able to marry would be subject to a 15, in Pennsylvania, 15% inheritance tax. And that's on assets even that are jointly titled. So if there was a home previously that was held by to individuals um, with the right of survivorship, and one of those individuals died, um, they'd be paying taxes on half the value of that home, which for some people meant, you know, not being able to stay in the home that they lived in with their partner because they were met with this really huge tax liability. So that's, um, you know, something where it's a really great benefit of being married is, you know, should something happen to one of the partners not having to pay um, the inheritance tax. Certainly also things like, you know, being the next of kin, having decision-making abilities in a medical emergency, um, things like that are also benefits. Right. So one of the things that you and I talked about was um, 
you know, who might be coming, you know, same-sex marriage is fairly new in Pennsylvania and in a number of other states now because 2014 and 2013 were pretty big years in a lot of states coming around and making changes. So one of the questions you and I talked about before was, you know, who might be in the situation here of, you know, having to think about um, divorce and, you know, they could be couples who are just getting married, you know, and things like that. But you also raised a category of, you know, couples where perhaps there was a marriage in another state. Perhaps that marriage has been dissolved for a while now, but there's no legal dissolution to it. So, you know, who might be in the position here of even thinking about or pursuing a, a same-sex divorce? Right. So to give a little background on that question, for um, marriage was first legal in the United States and Massachusetts in 2004, and so certainly couples traveled to Massachusetts and other states to enter marriages. And for entering a marriage in another jurisdiction, there's no residency requirement. But to get a divorce, usually there is a residency requirement of somewhere in most states between six months and a year. So certainly it's not feasible um, for couples who were living in a state like Pennsylvania prior to marriage equality here who ended their relationship to move and establish residency in a state that would allow them to get a divorce. So there are or many couples who were what we call wedlocked. They were stuck in a marriage that ended and couldn't get divorced and tied to this person that they weren't with anymore in many legal ways. So now... Um, those individuals who are wedlocked and live in a state like Pennsylvania are able to file for divorce in Pennsylvania, which is really important. Um, but some unique challenges that might come up are not being able to locate the person who they were in a previous relationship with. Another problem is you know, a person who might have moved on, this relationship was over, five years ago, they might now be facing, you know, a, a spousal support claim or, you know, have assets that they have you know, gotten rid of. And now the other person is saying, wait, you know, half of that asset was mine. And, and maybe that's, you know, you know, is going to lead to an equitable result. But certainly there will be stale claims coming forward um, that, you know, will now need the court's attention. Right. And then certainly if somebody now who is in a position and they want to get married, legally married even in the state that they're in now. So let's say they're in Pennsylvania and they want to get married, but they're legally married in Vermont, um, mm-hmm. that needing to be able to end that marriage before they can become involved in another one. Right. And that gets even more tricky um, when there are certainly other legal statuses that were available to same-sex couples that are not marriage, um, civil unions in New Jersey, for example, domestic partnerships in states like California. And in Pennsylvania, our laws say nothing about how a civil union is to be treated or how a domestic partnership is to be treated. And so you might have someone who has a civil union with one person that has rights and benefits associated with it still today, you know, and they, you know, you know, if they're living in Pennsylvania, the court, you know, may not take jurisdiction over that. We have cases, you know, that are working their way through the courts right now where we're trying to see, is Pennsylvania going to handle a civil union breakup? 
Um, or are they going to say, you know, we don't recognize that legal status here? Because previously, and before marriage equality, certainly people had civil unions and we tried to have those dissolved. And we had some success um, for a period of time in Philadelphia. But we were also told by other courts that, you know, this legal status doesn't exist. We, we you know, it's like, you know, we don't see it. Um, but where that presents a problem is, you know, people come in and out of states. Someone might work in New Jersey and live in Pennsylvania and have a civil union that, you know, has rights and benefits associated with it. They really, if they enter a new marriage, there are going to be rights connected to the first relationship that weren't cut off. And so it really creates a you know, complex legal environment right now where we, you know, are still needing to get some answers of how these different statuses are going to be handled. Right, so it sounds like before marriage became so legal, so and became so prevalent in terms of its legal status, that there weren't so many legal issues to raise in terms of the dissolutions that the rights were fair. But now it just it adds a whole other complexity in here as to how these other um, statuses are going to play into the process now when relationships dissolve. And some people, you know, have you know successive relationships, you know, with the same person, perhaps, um, you know, where they might have gotten, and, you know, and I handle cases in New Jersey, so I've certainly seen people who got, you know, domestic partnership in 2004 when that first became legal in New Jersey, and then they got a civil union in 2014 when that, or sorry, 2007 when that became legal, and then they got a marriage in 2013 when that became legal in New Jersey, and so if that person's no longer living in New Jersey, you know, they're going to need to ask the court wherever it is that's handling their divorce, not to just dissolve their marriage, but to dissolve each legal status they have with the other person, because should they move, you know, or should the other person move, there might be competing rights associated with having those statuses continue to exist. Wow. And, I, you know, we can see even just in talking with you this far how important it is to really, you know, have somebody who have legal counsel that's really helping to think through these things. You know, again, not to make it litigious, but to even who understands the complexity of how all these pieces work. Um, let's we could probably stay here for a very long time, but let's talk about to let's talk about custody and children, you know, and some of the things that we need to know about um you know, how divorce or dissolution of relationships are affecting children, what rights people have and what rights they need to be thinking about. So, you know, how does this process and, you know, in this, we're really going to talk about same sex couples and we're also going to talk about the transgender parents or parents who may become transgender in the, in the midst of the relationship or, you know, as they enter the relationship. Um, so let's talk a little bit about custody rights. So who has access to a court for custody is not, uh, and who has a legal connection with a child is not based solely on the marital status of the parents. What is most important is whether there is a legal connection to the children. So certainly before we had same-sex marriage in Pennsylvania, there were many same-sex parents and still are who weren't married, who are raising children together. And the way that we establish rights between 
a non-biological parent and a child is through an adoption. We used to do second parent adoptions and still do for unmarried couples. Now, um, same-sex couples can do step-parent adoptions. And that's how an adoption is a judgment that is recognized by every state in the United States and establish legal rights of parentage that are the same as the biological parent. And certainly in every same-sex relationship, if there's a child, you know, at least one of the partners is not going to be biologically related to that child um, as as a parent. So certainly adoptions are very important. And they're still important today, even for married couples, because um, a marriage, being married to a child's parent does not necessarily make you a legal parent. There's a historic concept of the marital presumption. Before we had you know, genetic testing and all that, there was a presumption that a man who was married to a woman was or is the father of a child born to that marriage. Um, but this presumption is rebuttable and where same-sex partners, you know, a non-biological partner, a non-biological parent might be concerned is that presumption is rebuttable and has been rebutted in some cases when a person is physically incapable of being a genetic parent from the offset, onset. So certainly in same-sex relationships, someone is going to be physically incapable of being a genetic parent from the offset. Um, and even with, we've seen um, hospitals doing different things with birth certificates. In some places, um, a child, a same-sex spouse will be put on a birth certificate um, in some places, they won't be put on a birth certificate. And it really, you know, is up to the hospital where that is, where that birth is taking place and how that birth is reported. But even if um, a same-sex spouse is put on a birth certificate, that does not make, that's not a legal determination of parentage. That's basically what was reported to vital statistics at the time of the birth. And so, you know, why, so it creates, I feel, this false sense of security where um, you know, someone may say, I'm a parent, I'm on the birth certificate, but if something goes badly, you know, and we've seen this, you know, across the country in some really heart-wrenching cases where the biological parent will say, you know, you're not the parent, this doesn't mean anything. And in some cases, we've even seen biological parents flee the jurisdictions that are more hostile um, to the rights of uh, a same-sex um, spouse who has been parenting a child. Um, is the legal status um, in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey? In Pennsylvania, it's called in loco parentis. In New Jersey, it's called psychological parent. And that's a way where a person who was intended to be a parent um, who's raised a child with the consent of the biological parent still has standing to ask the court for that relationship with the child to be continued. Um, but certainly, you know, if we can avoid that and have two legal parents, um, that's the better position for the non-biological parent to be in because certainly they can ask um, for custodial rights. And usually, um, you know, if they meet the factors, do get them. But um, I would say 
more often than not, they're seeing um, their time, you know, they might be the person who gets, um, who doesn't get primary physical custody. Um, and sometimes, you know, even if it shouldn't make a difference, um, whether that person's, you know, status is a legal parent as opposed to a psychological parent or in loco parentis, you know, I tend, does make a difference sometimes with how the court's going to view the situation. Right. And so, you know, the bottom line of what you said is not for people to assume that because now that the marriage is legal, that that, you know, gives them the legal parenting rights, but that the adoption is still critical in order for somebody to protect their legal parenting rights within a same-sex marriage. And so, you know, I want to stay on the topic just a little bit, and then I want to see what happens when we open up the lines um, and see if anybody has any questions they want to ask. But I did want to talk, we talked a little bit, one of the important parts about um, divorce and dissolution, especially when there are children involved, is parenting agreements. And we talked specifically about the case of transgender parents and what their rights are um, when, or, you know, what rights we're thinking about in terms of um the parenting agreement, what they're entitled to do, um, how they can parent, especially if, you know, the parent is becomes transgender in the course of the divorce or in the relationship and things like that. So talk to us a little bit about the parenting agreements and the rights of that transgender parent. Right. Um, so custody cases are always determined by what is in the best interest of the child. And a parent being gay, lesbian, or transgender is not contrary to the best interest of the child and usually, you know, and should not, for the most part, you know, be brought up. I would say for the most part, you know, if someone's coming out of an opposite sex marriage because they, you know, are identifying as gay or lesbian, I would say those arguments of, you know, this lifestyle that used to get, you know, traction, you know, 10, 15 years ago aren't getting traction now. Um, for transgender individuals, I feel that it might be a little different. Not that someone's gender identity should make a difference, but I feel like the arguments that attorneys, many attorneys are still willing to make on behalf of a spouse that's not transgender, you know, might be, you know, this is contrary to the best interest of the child because the child's confused. That the parents, you know, putting their need to move this process forward on a certain timeline above the child's need to, you know, understand this tr- transition. And, you know, and I think it really depends, you know, a lot of times when we, you know, just like any case, if parents, you know, feel the need to have a custody evaluation, certainly that's good. And we can really get to, you know, what actually is going on. Because a lot of times, you know, children who are young especially, they don't care. They have no problem, you know, this is how it is and they move on and, you know, they don't care. You know, if you if you have a teenager, you know, maybe, you know, there are some issues that need to be explored just like there are, you know, but this isn't, a, I would say, an issue that should get any more traction than any other issue that would need to be explored. And certainly it's not, you know, a ground for saying, okay, you're transgender, you, you know, are automatically getting, you know, a very restricted custody schedule. Certainly we've handled cases where the transgender parent you know, should have primary custody and does get primary custody. But certainly attorneys are willing, you know, and we've seen this in cases that we have, to, you know, make arguments that they probably wouldn't these days make about a gay or lesbian individual. Um, also, a lot of times, you know, people who are coming out as transgender, they don't want to be, you know, 
I guess most people don't want to be in court, but I would say that, you know, the idea of going to court for someone who's transgender might be even, you know, more intimidating because, you know, they are going to court and they're, you know, everyone's going to know, you know, and it's open court for family court um, that they, you know, on the caption of the divorce, it says their name is Bill, but they don't go by Bill anymore. They're now Barbara. And everyone in the courtroom, you know, is, and the court staff and the judge, you know, is going to know that. And so I've certainly seen, you know, you know, sometimes, you know, we see people who, you know, they just are so afraid of the process that they, you know, might be willing to agree to something that doesn't seem like the best outcome based on all the facts. So, Sharon, I'm going to ask you to open up the line, and we probably only have time for one question, but I want to see if there's a question out there that we want to. Um, Is there anybody who's calling in who has a specific question they'd like to um, hear Rebecca talk about for a moment or two? Alimony, distribution of assets um, after 32 years. Um, So, in terms of. We're not even sure. Can you say specifically, so is this say where there was a status to your relationship and now you're wondering how the courts might look at the distribution of assets? Yeah, yeah. Um, We've been together 32 years and uh, we're going to try to do it through a mediator. um, But I'm very worried about alimony because I cannot support myself without some alimony. Although we don't have children, I have been the caretaker, although she, she... pays the bills that I have taken care of everything. So um, I am very terrified of that, how the courts view, view that now for, I'm 70 by the way, so I'm in social security will not be enough. So let me. Hello. There's interference. Can you, hello? Yes. I, I, yeah. Oh, okay. There we go. Um, yeah. So, so it's a great question. Rebecca, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I ask you to respond to that question um, in the sense because there are many people in a similar situation. Maybe they were together for a long time. As we said, you know, they were living as a married couple, doing all those things, and now it's coming time to dissolve that relationship and there was no, um, you know, mar- legal marriage in the state in which they're residing. So, you know, what are some was of there the... the a legal marriage or, or there wasn't... A no, we had, we had domestic partnership and civil union um, and... Uh, although we lived together at this point, she has another relationship for the past two years. She's had one, so we are not married there's, legally so there's in New Jersey. Union in New Jersey. And do you live in New Jersey? Yes. Okay. So what? you are going to have and then civilly, so it will depend when the civil union is from New Jersey. You know, it's a very, very good thing that you live in New Jersey as opposed to Pennsylvania, because in Pennsylvania yeah. we really don't know what they're going to do with civil unions as a legal status. In New Jersey, at the state level, um, civil unions have all the rights and benefits that are associated with marriage. So, right. you know, alimony is one of those. Equitable distribution is another. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, obviously your your civil union, even if you got it, you know, in 2007 when New Jersey first offered that status, you know, you're still not, it's still nothing compared to the 32 years of the relationship. And so that's where, you know, that if a court was deciding this issue as opposed to resolving it in mediation, there, you know, 
they're going to need to be you know, told about the length of the relationship, how financially interdependent you are, because right. seven year, you know, if it's or eight years at this point, we're in 2015, so an eight year civil union looks very different from, you know, a 32 year relationship. And if you had a domestic partnership also from New Jersey, you know, that might right. be back till 2004 that you did everything you could in the state at least till 2004. But again, right. you know, arguments are going to be need to be made about, you know, how you know financially interdependent you were during that time, because you know it's it's not going to lead to an equitable result if the court's looking at this as you know at most a ten-year relationship when it really was much longer than that. So, um, Rebecca, I'm going to follow up with you in a moment there. And thank you for the question, um, and really, really important because it comes up a lot. Sharon, I'm going to ask you to mute the line again just for my, you know, so that we keep the, the background noise that might come through off. Um, Conference and so I, muted. You know, something that was important that you raised, Rebecca, is um, people's desire to end relationships without necessarily going to court, without making it more contentious than it is, and so a desire perhaps to do mediation. And recognizing that a mediation, it doesn't, what puts people in the position is advocating, you know, for themselves and depending on the nature of the relationship, how successful they can be with that. So if someone has a 32-year relationship of really advocating that, you know, here for themselves, getting educated, reaching out to someone like yourself to get some information and being able to advocate and then having, you know, to way for themselves um, how they can do that because as we know there's no case law for you know the courts there's also none you know in terms of the mediator the mediator can guide them in in thinking about how they would do this but they're really going to be negotiating amongst themselves and looking for something that is um, equitable and that certainly there are arguments to be made if it was a 32-year relationship um, that the the length of the span of those rights should uh, approach something, approximate something close to that, it sounds like what you're saying. Yeah, and mediation is a very good option where we know the courts are not going to, you know, have very much guidance um, on how to handle a case where there's, you know, a 10-year legal relationship and a 32-year real relationship because... I, you know, I've gone into court, and in New Jersey, you have what's called an early settlement panel, where you have some seasoned matrimonial attorneys give their recommendation about where they think the case is set, what should settle, based on all the cases like it that they've seen. And when I come in with cases like this, where I have a very long relationship, and you know, only part of which was a legal relationship, you know, the panel like throws up their hands and they're like, well, this is a really, you know, interesting question. And, and no one wants to be the case that's the really interesting case because that doesn't get you to a resolution. And even if a judge makes the decision, you know, because there's no precedent on this, it's very easy for someone to appeal that decision. So where, you know, so sometimes mediation, you know, if you can, because there's so much uncertainty, Sometimes mediation, you know, will work, but also mediation, you know, if if one person doesn't have, you know, isn't willing to come to the table and do something that's equitable, you know, oftentimes there's no choice but to turn to the um, to turn to litigation. Right. 
So in the last few minutes that we have here, you know, we have a few more minutes. I would like to invite you to talk a little. I mean, we could go on for a very long time. I have a lot of things we didn't even cover here. But, um, you know, where are resources available? And I want to spend a few minutes here in terms of legal resources. How do people find mediators, attorneys, legal counsel that can support them in thinking about this? And I want to, you know, make the point that you, uh, we even alluded to a moment ago, which is getting legal advice about something doesn't always mean, you know, retaining a lawyer and going down a legal process that may land in court. But even if you're mediating, you may have supporting counsel that can help give you, you know, some idea, you know, thoughts about how to approach it. So where can people get find legal support from um, attorneys and mediators who have familiarity or who are engaging in the dialogue around LGBT? And then in the non-legal realm, around the psychological and emotional support for ch- the children of those families, for the adults um, in those families, where are these resources? So some resources to start, and we, you know, our practice spans, you know, a, a broad geographic area, you know, at least the five counties around Philadelphia and also New Jersey, and sometimes because we handle unique legal issues, sometimes we do work in counties that are even outside of that area. Um, so, you know, and certainly, you know, what therapist, for example, might be helpful is going to be based, you know, not only on whether the parents are you know, gay or lesbian, but also on the children's age and a number of other factors. So, um, but I would say that, you know, sometimes places to start, certainly, um, you know, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, through the Bar Association, um, there is... LGBT rights sections or committees, and so whoever you know is in charge of those committees or sections are certainly a good person you know to, to know that an attorney is affiliated with one of those um, organizations. It's good to know um, that they're an attorney who's going to be aware of and sensitive to LGBT issues. Same thing with mediators. Um, <clears throat> also. Um, you know, there are, at least in Philadelphia, there is um, a Chamber of Commerce for LGBT um, businesses or people who, you know, are allies and have joined that organization as, you know, identifying themselves as friendly. And so um, in Philadelphia, it's called the Independence Business Alliance, and they also cover a broader geographic area than just Philadelphia. And so certainly that's also a good place to start if you're looking for a financial planner, for example, that you just want to, you know, be comfortable going in there and saying, okay, this man is my husband and I'm a man and this, or this woman is my spouse. Certainly if you're looking, you know, for um, businesses that are going to be friendly, that's a good place to start. And I know that they have um, financial planners, you know, tax preparers, mediators, um, all of whom are affiliated with that organization. Um, And so that also can be helpful to know that, you know, you're walking into a a place that's going to be friendly and sensitive and and not, you know, automatically assume on their forms, you know, what is your husband's name? You know, that it might say, you know, what is your spouse's name? Um, So that's good. Also, um, good resources, Mazzoni Center in Philadelphia, is a good place to start for looking for resources. They keep a list of different professionals, but also attorneys who they've identified as being friendly. Um, Garden State Equality in New Jersey 
And then also in terms of, you know, more general getting information, um, the national organizations I always look to are the National Center for Lesbian Rights, Lambda Legal, um, American Civil Liberties Union, LGBT Rights Project, um, and the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. And I know one other thing you and I talked about was, and I even went on there too, and say um, that psychology today, you can search specifically for therapists who, you know, indicate LGBT as um, areas of focus in their practice. And so you can also search, you know, LGBT course and course and things like that and, and relationship um, matters so that you can find specific counsel that way as well um, through psychology today. And, you know, we just have about one minute left or so, Rebecca. So I'm curious, you know, you've looked at the Divorce Companion. For those who are on the call, the Divorce Companion is a program that um, our company, Divorce Essentials, put out to really support people in making the transition. And, you know, how, how could this be helpful um, to couples, same-sex couples who are navigating? Well, I think everything, you know, that, you know, and well, at first, you know, the language that you use, you know, partner, I think that, you know, it's very, you know, sensitive to, you know, not every, you know, to being inclusive. Um, you know, the issues, the, the thinking, the emotional issues that are involved in the process of any breakup are, are the same. You know, you know, knowing what your support system is, you know, thinking about, you know, your values, what your priorities are, you know, what your relationship is going to, you know, what your life is going to look like when you're no longer in this relationship, you know, is really, you know, the same, I would say. There, while there might be a lot of unique legal issues, I don't think the emotional issues are really very different. Certainly if someone's coming out as transgender, gay, or lesbian, there might be an added component, but certainly the end of any relationship is, is something where people are going to you know, be navigating very difficult emotional decisions, financial decisions, um, and really need to get you know, a pulse on, on the situation and, and get in the you know, right frame of mind and know what their resources and supports are. So I think this, you know, the um, the guide that you prepared really is you know helpful to you know not it's certainly helpful to anyone going through the process not just um, you know people who are coming out of a traditional marriage. So um, we have we're wrapping up here and so one of the things I want to make sure is that people know how to ask more questions and reach everybody um, who's on the call. So quickly, Rebecca, how can people reach you or find your firm if they want to, you know, inquire about support or services legally? So how do they reach you? Um, well, again, our firm is Jerner and Palmer, um, J-E-R-N-E-R and Palmer, P-A-L-M-E-R. Um, we have a website, which is www.jplaw.com. Um, people can also always call our firm. Again, we practice in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Um, our main telephone number is 215-843-6000. And also by email, uh, my, my email address is rlevin, L-E-V-I-N, um, at jplaw.com. 
Great. Thank you. And in terms of the Mainline Family Law Center, who does um, support people in mediation um, through same-sex divorce, and they are at MainlineDivorceMediator.com. Um, I am at Divorce Essentials. We provide coaching and support for people who are really looking to develop their plan and navigate the process, and that's at DivorceEssentials.net with an S at the end, DivorceEssentials.net. Um, and then the Divorce Companion that we just spoke about, which really is a step-by-step guide for supporting people through divorce, has its site at divorcecompanion.com. And so in any of those places, please reach out to us, email us with questions. You'll get a follow-up email to this that will invite you if you want to have a conversation. So we do encourage you to reach out, continue to gather more information. And um, when you do get a copy of the recording of this call, to uh, share it with people as well, others who you know who might benefit from it. So we really are here to support people. And Rebecca, I want to thank you so much for sharing your incredible knowledge and expertise on this topic. And I know that this call will uh, provide a great resource, especially, you know, having it recorded here that we'll be able to, you know, have people listening and and, uh, be able to gain access to the information that really is not so easily available out there. So thank you so much for sharing your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healthy Divorce Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me, Sharon Pastore, or my partner, Chris Pastore, at MyHealthyDivorce.com. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, you can have a healthy divorce. It's how you divorce that matters.